from KPMG, this is Global Perspectives with Jillian Tech. Hello and welcome to Global Perspectives, the podcast series from KPMG that's focused on the big international issues and inspiring leaders who want to shape a more sustainable world where CEOs and companies can flourish. On this month's episode, we're going to look at technology because we all know that technology has a power to unlock growth. But what should company leaders be doing to truly embrace innovation and transform their growth journey? I'm going to be talking to Patricia Ensworth, a business anthropologist who spent the last 25 years working in global organizations and advising them looking at what can make or break a growth hungry company when it comes to tech. She's been looking at how CEOs can understand the power of innovation and use technology to develop and implement a safety culture, risk analysis, quality assurances, and of course, produce new products and services for their customers. So Patricia, thanks for joining us today on Global Perspectives. We've seen technology undergo radical, rapid transformation in recent years. And every time a new technology comes in, what happens is managers think, aha, we have these amazing experts, technical experts who are going to transform our business with a bunch of computers. And yet time and again, what you've seen is actually, if you don't think about the people engaged in tech, it all goes horribly wrong, doesn't it? Well, that is true, and I, I see that in in many ways. You know, uh, in addition to consulting, I, I run management training workshops, and one of the things that often comes up uh, as potential issues relating to uh, failures in the past or uncertainties in the future is is inadequate stakeholder analysis. You know, I think oftentimes when uh, technology projects are undertaken, there is not enough attention paid to the unintended consequences to the stakeholders who are less visible, uh, less well-known. So I think that's one of the things that uh, anthropologists can can help with is to disclose that and help plan for those situations. I mean, there, it seems to me, having looked through your published analysis, and a lot of it's private, but one of the big problems that tends to occur, one out of two big problems, I'll come to the second one in a moment, is that people forget that IT workers come from their own different cultures. And you have hilarious material in some of your writings about how trying to combine Indian IT workers with Ukrainian IT workers, with Canadian IT workers, and all the different outsourcing experiences that many big global companies have gone through has often caused massive misunderstandings and frictions in the workplace, even to the point where, you know, sometimes you get some people throwing coffee at other people because of misunderstandings. Um, Tell us briefly, I mean, in the big outsourcing way that happened, did companies think enough about the cultural, cross-cultural challenges and miscommunications? Uh, no, not really. I think in in outsourcing uh, and in sourcing in general, you know, nowadays we're looking at nearshoring and uh, reshoring and friendshoring. Uh, it's it's uh, different geographical locations, but oftentimes it's question of cost per hour. 
it really it comes down to uh, a dollars and cents analysis. And what happens when you put people together <laughs> from very, very different cultural backgrounds is a lot of misunderstanding. And I, I think that's not just limited to outsourcing. You know, in the United States, we live in a very multicultural world. And when you put together people, even I'm thinking of a project I've been working on here in New York City, where people are working on uh, IT projects, they come from different countries, they come from different ethnicities, they come from different religions, and so forth. So all of those are cultural variables and can have the potential to be somewhat disruptive unless uh, it's understood what people are bringing to the table. And do you think company managers typically spend enough time thinking about this and recognizing this? Or is there the temptation to assume that because computers appear to be acultural and apersonal that we, do, we can just ignore this? Well, for uh, the past 25 years or more, there's been an adage in, in the uh, computer world that behind most technical problems, you will find a people problem. <laughs> and and the, I think the answer is no. Uh, senior managers outside of IT and even some within IT don't really tune into this, this issue sufficiently. So it uh, comes to the fore uh, either reactively when something has gone seriously wrong and all the data that has been gathered about the problem really doesn't explain why. The other time it uh, enters people's consciousness is in kind of more strategic planning when uh, there are some uh, more sophisticated and enlightened uh, senior managers who understand that uh, safety culture is something that needs to be built. And that in order to do that, it's important to look at uh, you know, the, the channels of communication, the rituals of meetings and so forth. That is the longer process. I mean, one of your core messages in your work is that you can't just look at IT and technology with tunnel vision. You need to have lateral vision and try and do a sort of entire broad analysis of how an IT system sits within the culture of organization. And yet most companies don't do that, do they? That is true. And I think, you no, know, in, in your uh, recent book, AnthroVision, you know, you make a really good case for that, that sort of lateral vision. It's, it's probably human nature uh, to behave that way. You know, we, we stick with our habits. We know we stick with what we know. We uh, tend to gravitate toward people who understand us easily. So really only in the situation where uh, you, you have to react to a, a negative uh, outcome or are planning for uh, innovation in ways that uh, no one has really thought about before. Those are the times when the lateral vision becomes most relevant. I mean, one of the other things I find fascinating about your work is that you made the point that when people working in technology are trained, IT workers, they tend to often be trained in quite a sequential mode of thought. So they see lines in quite linear sequential systems. And so if they're creating a new product, they often tend to have, again, tunnel vision in terms of how they actually write the software. And when problems occur or when upgrades occur, they kind of get bolted on on top in ways that can often create problems. So the first iteration of any new software can work quite well, but by the time you get to the fifth or sixth iteration, it's starting to go wrong. Can you explain to us a bit what you mean by that? Well, I think it is the, uh, the nature of engineers to uh, focus on the beauty and efficiency of, of what is built. 
Uh, and um, that doesn't necessarily take into account the ways in which people will unexpectedly respond to the finished product. And uh, there's been some uh, really interesting work done. There's a recent book called Understanding Users uh, that looks at the different ways that people interact with technology, you know, directly, indirectly as people who are approvers of technology or auditors of technology. So there's a lot of different roles people can play in uh, relation to uh, technology. And it's also a mindset. I I was told recently a a user experience uh, manager uh, at a technology company I I won't name uh, was telling me about a conversation she had where a senior engineer was introducing a new product to a user group and spent the entire half hour meeting explaining how it was put together and the wonderful things it should do. And in fact, it did all of those things, but it was supposed to be a half hour meeting. And at about minute 28, uh, this engineer turned to the people who, uh, who were being shown this new uh, wonderful product and said, okay, so what do you think? And, and I think you know, there, there is um, a mindset of engineers are artists in many ways. Mathematicians you know, are, are proud of, of the algorithms that they write. But it is true that over time, these uh, initial creations, uh, as they are adapted, as new features are added, as they have to be modified because new uh, data privacy laws come into effect, you know, all these things happen, the original design uh, becomes a little... Rube Goldbergish after a while. So uh, it, it's important to continue to focus on the interaction between what is built and how people are using it. And I think that is one area where where risk management becomes ever more important because you see the unintended consequences. In a moment, we'll return to the second part of our interview with Patricia Ensworth. But first, Let's speak to KPMG's Global Head of Advisory, Carl Karandi. Carl, Patricia Ensworth spoke about the importance with digital transformation of understanding that they link between what's actually built and who is actually using it. It matters a lot what kind of people you've got who are trying to implement your strategy. So I know you've spoken a lot about these factors when you're looking at companies that are trying to change themselves But can you talk about how important the people factor is when leaders are looking at what practical steps they need to take? Thanks, Jillian. And and I would absolutely agree. I think most professionals agree that improving the technology is the easy part. Changing the people is really the hard part. And to accelerate transformation, our recommendation is to focus on high value changes. It is critical to business strategy where you are deficient in people capability today and you know view things as a series of choices which i think would make it helpful buy critical talent from the market uh, build capabilities when you can using the talent you have and then borrow people using business partners and i think it's also helpful to think of incubating certain capabilities and isolating them from your normal business operations get the talent you need in from the business around them as you progress and then I'd say lastly, you know, ensure that the teams building the future state have a solid grounding in the business purpose, the users and ultimate recipients of the new environment, help all parties feel invested in part of the success. I think it's important if they haven't helped build the strategy, they understand the strategy and clearly the North Star where they're going. I think that's going to help uh, bring the people along as you're doing the transformation. 
Well, that I mean, that all sounds great in theory, but in practice, we're living at a time of incredible uncertainty, which are leaving a lot of CEOs and other C-suite people pretty scared, and they are, tend to take a more cautious and risk-averse approach when they're looking at their growth strategies. So what do you say to executives right now who maybe want to change, but feel pretty nervous about moving forward with any radical transformation? You know, that's, that's a really good question because it really is, you know, it's a very, um, very, very difficult economic environment. And if you believe an economic shift will negatively impact your business, you got to use your response to reposition your business for the eventual economic upturn. And we clearly have always seen that growth coming out of uh, an economic uh, impact or recession is greater on the back end. You know, you might be tempted to take a peanut butter approach and spread risk evenly across your portfolio. Uh, many executives are finding value in differentiating their risk appetite based on the potential growth agenda. So really think more risk when there's more growth. And, and I think that's really a very effective strategy. And if the headwinds are extremely stiff, it's going to pressure test your growth strategy. And any good future model will need to endure uh, various economic cycles. So building something during a downturn is going to ensure it's resilient. And then periods of uncertainty can be the best time to take advantage of opportunities why, why others shelter in place or move slowly. And we're certainly seeing in that market today, there are great opportunities uh, for those entities that have a clear strategy and understand what the opportunities are going to be as we navigate through this economic cycle. Right. So another person's pain can be your gain if you actually have the courage to do that. Yeah. But um, but I mean, it, one of the problems that I'm also very struck by is that when people talk about this kind of radical change, anyone who's trying to implement this has to try and spread it across a whole range of different departments and professional skills. I mean, you've got this classic problem of silos. Um, in all kinds of companies and you know how do you get the IT guys to understand the ESG team or etc cetera, etc cetera. so I'm kind of curious do you have any thoughts about how CEOs can go about silo busting or even just trying to implement change when they can't get inside every silo and get all the different tribes to talk to each other yeah that's it's a really good question and, and we see tremendous value in putting customers and really employees for that matter, in the center of decisions you make. And using customer-centric design forces organizations to work across disciplines in the best interest of your end customer. And I think that can also help you prioritize where to invest time and money. And this allows for executives to weigh in on the critical aspects of a design and not the specific elements of how changes get ingested. And you know, lastly, I think it's really about culture and, and a big derailleur uh, for executives and CEOs to really keep their pulse on what's going on and where they need to invest their time, you know, wraps around the culture. Is the culture of the organization uh, enabling people to raise their hand when they see issues and when they need help uh, to escalate those? And if you have an, uh, a culture where uh, problems and issues are encouraged to be raised so you can mitigate them, you're going to be in a great spot to spend your time effectively uh, the biggest derailleur I see is when organizations have a culture where raising your hand or issue identification is not encouraged. And so by the time there are issues, it's really too late for the CEO to interject and actually help mitigate. So 
focus on the culture as well. And I think you're going to have great outcomes, even in an environment where there's, you know, too many things to keep uh, a close eye on. So you're going to have to really rely on your management team. Well, that takes us straight back to the kind of things that Patricia was talking about in terms of the, you know, trying to have effective tech strategy requires not just brilliant computing code, but good cultures too. So, Carl, thanks for joining us on Global Perspectives. And now let's turn to the second part of the interview with Patricia Ensworth. What strikes me talking to so many companies, whether it's a Wall Street bank or a you know, newspaper journalism world like myself, is this constant theme that people who aren't in their IT departments always, always say they, almost always say they hate the IT department. And I'm sure that's, you know, the other way around is that the IT workers sit there and think, well, the people designing these wonderful products think, well, why don't, doesn't anyone else in the company use our product correctly? And everyone else sits there and complains about what what's going on. Um, what can be done to break that down? Because, you know, these days we're supposed to all be technologists. Um, how do you get out of this tribal mentality of, you know, the IT department feeling cross with everyone else and everyone else feeling cross with the IT department? Well, interesting to think about that as a tribal issue. Uh, and it reminds me of when I was in, in graduate school in anthropology at Columbia. The, I, I was working uh, at the time, this is uh, before I started in finance, at uh, a division of Westinghouse, right? So uh, it was a global organization. And uh, we had a very senior, uh, well-known anthropologist uh, teaching a course on urban anthropology who kept on making pronouncements about how business people think. Right. And there's and, no such thing as a business person. Yes. Right. So I would keep on raising my hand and say, well, now, wait a minute. You know, are you talking about marketing? Are you talking about, you know, uh, internal audit? And it was basically kind of sh shut down. You know, that was it was all all business people think alike. And and when I hear uh, people uh, talk about IT people, IT workers, you know, I, I think we have a, a similar filter in place, you know, that uh, within uh, systems and software engineering, there is such a, a diversity of jobs and backgrounds and professional skills that, uh, you know, one thing uh, a business could do to uh, highlight that is to, you know, showcase some of the processes that go on behind the scenes. Uh, and I think, you know, IT workers, uh, IT people just in general have uh, of necessity uh, gotten to know areas of the business because they're writing the tools for it. It's like the tailor has to measure, you know, the customer for whom you're making the suit. Uh, but it doesn't go the other way. I mean, one of the problems, of course, is that Zoom has meant we've all become scattered and even more prone to staying within our own little tribal groups inside big companies. There's a number of companies that are saying that even if the frontline customer facing workers have to come back into the office the people writing software and code actually don't because they can do it from home do you think there's a danger that actually companies are going to become even more fragmented and tribal or there's going to be even more misunderstandings between the people who work with software and those who don't going forward i do think that's a risk we 
haven't yet seen the end of the story about working from home versus working together. From my uh, dealings with people who are working in, t- in technology, they are, many of them, looking forward to being back in the office for the purpose of innovation. You know, it may not be five days a week, but hallway conversations, you know, are, are important. And uh, I think we're seeing this particularly in the more innovative areas, uh, you know, such as people working on wearables and the metaverse, you know, those folks are, are getting together again. But with regard to behind the scenes work, there is a certain amount of technology maintenance that really can be done remotely. And we learned that in the offshore outsourcing era, that you can have a a global distributed team and uh, you can have a follow the sun development model. It works. What makes it work, what connects people together is the amount of attention that is paid to the tools of communication. When you are in that kind of environment, Zoom is the tool by which we communicate face-to-face, voice-to-voice, but the workflow tools that people use to pass work along from one stage to the next and comment on it are really key. And I think in my management uh, workshops, this is often uh, a pain point that people bring. How do we unite teams in ways that enable not only uh, collaboration, but also facilitate dissent. Because one of the key areas of risk management is to create an atmosphere of psychological safety where people can voice disagreement, voice concerns. And I think in this distributed environment on Zoom, it's very hard to do that. You know, when you are in a room with somebody, you kind of learn by their body language or their tone of voice, what the emotional context is. So this is something that uh, the organizations I work with are paying a great deal of attention to now. Well, that's fantastic. Well, listen, thank you, Patricia. If I had to sum up what you've been saying, it's a, a world drowning in artificial intelligence, one type of AI. Um, needs another type of intelligence, anthropology intelligence, um, the second AI. Um, So thanks for sharing those stories. That's really fascinating and very best of luck for everyone listening and trying to pull some of those perspectives into their everyday experience with handling technology. So thank you. Well, thank you, Jillian. It's been a pleasure speaking with you and uh, I, I hope your listeners will find some of this useful. 